Hello, and welcome to our Unenlightenment podcast. My name is Eric English. I'm a resident philosopher, theologian, and ninja. Well, hey, everyone, we have an awesome show for you today. I have with me Frank Schaefer. Frank is an activist, director, painter, storyteller, and New York Times bestselling author of more than a dozen fiction and nonfiction books, including Crazy for God, and his newest book with the absurdly long title, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, was just released today. Frank has done nearly everything awesome a human can do except stand-up comedy, but you never know. I've heard him speak. He's pretty funny. He is with us here today. Welcome, Frank. Thank you so much. I'm really appreciating the fact that you're uh, with me now on the launch of a book that took me five years to write. So <clears throat> this is a big day for me. Great. So, hey, uh, our audience may or may not know this, but you are actually the son of Francis Schaeffer, well-known theologian and philosopher within evangelicalism. And you have a really unique, interesting story about how you've uh, come to where you're at today in writing this book. So I was wondering if you could just give us a brief uh, uh, introduction into your former evangelical life. Well, it's interesting you bring this up because my editor, Christine Belleris, who's a wonderful person at HCI Press, um, was reading the book in, in her first pass uh, a few months ago when we were getting ready to edit this. And she said, listen, you mentioned the fact that your father was Francis Schaeffer, that you were raised in an evangelical fundamentalist missionary household. You talk about leaving it. You've got just enough in here to make people want to know more and not quite enough to actually set the book up. Please go back and rewrite your foreword and give us more. And of course, my heart sunk because I have been trying for the last 40 years to get past this. I wrote a memoir called Crazy for God about 15 years ago, and I thought, okay, I've, I've put this to bed. But having had one of the founders of the religious right as your parent, and having been his nepotistic sidekick with blood on my own hands, literally and figuratively, for having been part in the 1970s and 80s of the rise of the religious right and all the regrets and self-recrimination that go with that, it's not a subject that I wanted to readdress. But then, of course, with the election of Donald Trump and the switch of the Republican Party from being an ordinary political party uh, on a conservative side to being a kind of a a new thing, an anti-democratic vote uh, rigging kind of people who don't even accept elections and all this other stuff. Of course, I've been getting calls from the media saying, hey, well, wait a minute, weren't you guys, your family, part of the change that happened to evangelicals that eventually overtook the Republican Party and gave us Donald Trump? And so, you know, I'm pushing 70 now, and I don't think I'm ever getting out from under this. Um, so in the forward to uh, the book, um, I took the time to introduce folks to my background, and I'll, I'll take the time to do that now. And it's not the whole book, but it's not understandable without that. Um, I was raised in a very small, fundamentalist, humble missionary background in Switzerland, where my dad and mom had gone in 1947, right after World War II, to work with youth, kids, teenagers in bombed out cities. And they they located in Switzerland because it was the only place with infrastructure that hadn't been bombed to ruins by either America or Britain or the Germans. And so they could get somewhere from there to Berlin or Amsterdam, wherever it might be. Uh, in the early 1950s, they had a break with the mission that had sent them over and started their <clears throat> own ministry. And anybody from an evangelical background knows that 
evangelical ministries and churches divide and divide and divide. Um, you know, so that's the history of evangelicalism. But they started something called the Brie Fellowship, L apostrophe A B R I, which means the shelter in French. It became a worldwide uh, phenomena in the sense that by the by the early 1970s, Dad had written some books like The God Who Is There, Escape from Reason, and so forth that became really household items in the whole American and Anglo-Saxon evangelical experience. So if you had checked in with anybody who knew anything about the evangelical community and say, let's pick a year, 1978, and you had said, who are the big figures of evangelical Christianity? They would have said, well, the Reverend Billy Graham, the evangelist, maybe the author C.S. Lewis, although he wasn't an evangelical, he was an Anglican and really disliked American evangelicalism, which is ironic. That's another story. Um, and there would be Francis Schaeffer, my dad. So my childhood was in a ministry, a faith ministry, where literally we only had meat on the weekends because we didn't have any money. We didn't have a car. Dad worked on the side of his bed on a little tea tray, did not have a secretary. Uh, you know, very humble faith work, uh, open door policy, intentional community before there were many such things, kind of a combination of fundamentalist Christianity and a hippie commune, British rock and roll people coming through. Uh, Timothy Leary, the drug guru, came and stayed and studied for a while with dad and became his friend. If you had checked in then, let's say in 1959 through 65, you would have said, look, this is really weird. We're, we're in a kind of a hippie commune, beat commune back in those days. Schaefer is giving lectures on the early Bob Dylan. We're watching Woody Allen films um, up in the local cinema and coming home and discussing the philosophy of, of, of kind of Jewish derived atheism versus Christianity. It's a kind of a weird cultural center, very tolerable, uh, tolerant of gay people, Black people coming from America and Africa feeling welcomed, whatever it would have been described as was not a phenomena of the religious right. Uh, ask Francis Schaeffer what he believes in. It's the risen Christ. Jesus has all the answers. Straight evangelical fundamentalist gospel, but stay in the community. It's welcoming. It's open. It's inclusive. So really different. In other words, years later, when I got familiar with the big time American evangelical Christianity, it's like there was nothing else like this. And because of that, it became immensely successful and popular. So, you know, I would look up from the table and there would be Barbara Bush, uh, my daughter, Jessica, that was born back in 1970 when I was 17 and Jeannie, my wife was 18. We got pregnant as teens before we were married, was babysat for a year by Gerald Ford's son, and daughter-in-law uh, who were studying at Labrie. By that time in my life, my late teens, early 20s, I was the nepotistic sidekick heir to an evangelical superstar. And you have to either be a North Korean or a member of the British royal family to get how evangelicalism works. It wasn't just the Schaefers that do this. Look at all the ministries. They rope in the wives and cousins. Everybody's on the payroll. They're supposed to be nonprofit 501c3 companies, but in fact, they are very, very, very profit-making, big deal enterprises. Now, ours wasn't that, but the nepotism was part of what we did. So we made a first film series that also had a book companion called How Should We Then Live on Art and Culture, Philosophy, the History of Christianity, and so forth. If you had read that, you might interpret it any way you wanted in terms of believing dad's version of art history and culture and all the rest of it. 
but you would not label it as from the right wing. It was basically his idea of apologetics, ways to prove Christianity is true, the great music of Johann Sebastian Bach, the art of Vermeer and Rembrandt, the history of the Renaissance leading to humanistic philosophy and the enlightenment, all of these things. But the last episode uh, revolved around Roe v. Wade because that had come down, <clears throat> that decision had been handed down while we were making the project. And dad was very critical of it from the point of view of what he called judicial overreach, the creep of the judiciary into making legislative type decisions. <clears throat> well, Dr. Sierra Coop, who was a family friend and at that time the surgeon in chief of the Philadelphia Children's Hospital, and later would be Ronald Reagan's surgeon in chief, loved that episode and said to my dad, because Dr. Coop was a, an anti-abortion fanatic, really in the mold of, say, an old-fashioned Roman Catholic, why don't you make a whole series on the human life issues, abortion, infanticide, euthanasia, everything that will come from that as he saw it? Dad didn't want to, because dad, like many evangelical leaders at the time, was either ambivalent about abortion, uh, or as in the case of Dr. Billy Graham, the evangelist, or Dr. Criswell, the president of the then Southern Baptist Convention and president of Dallas Theological Seminary, actually pro-choice. Sadly, it was me, a young, ambitious, mid-20-something, who wanted to make another film series that Dr. Coop first talked into doing this, and then I talked my dad into it. And so actually, little footnote here, one of the things that I've spent time doing in my writing when it comes to issues of race and uh, gender equality and these other things is pointing out that my father, have, if he had not been involved in this last project, whatever happened to the human race film and book series, would not now be regarded as one of the founding fathers of the religious right. So he would be looked at like an evangelical leader, say the same way that Dr. Billy Graham is, not that he was the same, but similar type of profile, but not of the right. So one of the bad things that has happened that I try to make some little restitution for is pointing out that I grew up in a multiracial, tolerant, loving community called Labrie. My father was not this intolerant bigot of the kind that Jerry Falwell, the segregationist was, or Pat Robertson, let alone a money-grubbing flake like so many of these big criminal enterprises that are basically what white big time American Christianity in America has become. So in the introduction to my book, um, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, one of the things that I did was try to map out a little bit of my own journey so that once I got into the topic of what I call real family values, as opposed to the misogyny that we were selling as family values, the fake family values that we were selling, oppression of women and so forth and so on. Uh, there's a context so that the story is not just about family values, care for children, relationships in which wives are equal partners to husbands, that has room for non-binary people, transgender people, gay people, and so forth, this story's background is my own change of mind and heart on these issues. So really the book, uh, my editor was right. And by explaining a little bit of my own background, first of all, the book is a bit of a mea culpa and an apology for what I, the part I played in luring my dad into doing something that later branded him in a way that is really unfair given the body of his work. But secondly, it goes to show and a kind of a note of hope that if a nepotistic sidekick, former evangelical right-wing hotshot 
you know, jerk by divine right, as it were, called Frankie Schaefer can become something different, uh, that the path to that change is possible for people. So the rest of the book is an argument for putting career second and money second and achievement second and human relationships first. In other words, redefining the corporate definition of success into something that actually mirrors our evolutionary path in ways that gives us really joy-filled lives and caring lives of other people, which is really what the book argues for. And then I found after sending it to some of my more sciencey friends, they were telling me, you're really on the right track here intuitively. Too bad you don't know anything about what you're talking about. Why don't you do some reading? Well, five years later, I completed the reading and wrote the 27th draft of this book, which is now being published today. And so it became a huge project on the, on the level of taking an entire university degree in neurobiology uh, under the tutelage of some sciencey friends of mine who actually do teach in universities, who would just say, okay, that's great. This chapter is better, but you still need to read three more books. I hate homework. I'm a terminal dyslexic. It was like a nightmare to me. But because it was putting forward an argument that comes literally from the heart of what means most to me, which is the childcare I give three of my five grandchildren on a daily basis, and explains the joy I find in that childcare as opposed to career ambition and this kind of stuff that our culture changes as we define ourselves by, you know, not who are you, but what do you do uh, is the question. So that's how the book all unfolded. It's kind of an ass backward way of talking about it, but it really it charts the change of mind and heart philosophically I have coming out of the religious right. It talks about real family values where we give people real choices and support and childcare and other things, as opposed to the fake family values, which are really just misogyny warmed over to put women in their place, quote unquote, from an evangelical perspective of men being in charge of everything. And then charts the change of heart I had, not because of some books I read, but really the experience of being the primary caregiver for my three youngest grandchildren for the last 12 years. So there's a lot folded in there, but it is the antithesis to what I was doing in the 70s with my dad's right-wing activities, put it that way. And maybe I hope a little bit of an answer to it, but also to capitalist corporate America, which is weirdly utilitarian and misogynistic and very much a mirror image of the sort of Ayn Randian ethic of evangelical leadership, which is these sort of superheroes leading these ministries, you know, the Pat Robertsons, the Dr. Dobsons, these other people who step forward and tell people what to do with their lives. You know, I've been all about that. I, I've rejected that. And I found, I hope, a better way that I've shared with people. But it's strange to me that, you know, companies like Facebook and Google are run by people who really could have been good evangelical megachurch leaders, egomaniacal narcissists, uh, who'd rather do a moonshot than help anybody or build a rocket to do what I don't know, or of 414 foot yacht, whatever. Um, I know these folks. I, I, I grew up working with people like that. I almost became one of them. So um, that's a really interesting story. And thank you for uh, sharing that with us, because that really does provide some context into uh, the, the majority of your book. What you said you started five years ago. What was the catalyst for writing this? Why did you what what popped into your head one day and, and said you really need to do something like this? A couple of things popped into my head. One was regret over the way that I had spent six months away from home on the road 
in a more striving part of my life, first in the evangelical world and then in the low end of the Hollywood movie business after I walked away from the evangelical faith and had to earn my living somehow. So I cut a reel from my, my evangelical documentaries, left out the God bets, found myself an agent in Hollywood, made four crappy movies as a director out there. Um, but you know, when I started to write novels and was able to be at home at more, I discovered a, a, a new path toward being a parent, really hands-on. But that then was doubled exponentially when I started doing childcare for my youngest of the three grandchildren who happened to now live across the street from me, Lucy, who's now 13. And really the discovery that in Lucy, I had found my truest calling, which I know this is gonna sound weird. So let me finish this and explain it, which is actually mothering and I don't mean that in a transgender sense, and I don't mean that in a, in a gender sense, and I don't mean that in a calling sense. I mean that I discovered that my greatest joy came from caring for someone else, cradle to grave mothering and nurturing, being open to anyone, male, female, non-binary, gay, straight, you name it. In realizing that I had such regret for the time I had spent away from home when my own children were growing up, combined with the difference in care I was able to give this little girl because I had learned something. I'm pushing 70 now, but you know, by my, my late 50s and early 60s, I guess I had learned something in terms of what I value most. I just wanted to share that. And I wanted to share it with the kind of career education driven, rather sad people I was meeting on campuses around the country as I went to speak at a lot of fancy schools uh, because my my book, uh, Crazy for God, turns out that it's a, used as a textbook in a lot of fancy places you've heard of um, that I won't name, um, but you can guess where they are in both philosophy, but also the history of religion, anthropology, and so forth, because there's a lot of currents in terms of my journey out of the evangelical world and the history that I was witness to. And um, I kept finding people who were delaying relationships, delaying having children, delaying making commitments in favor of you know, what they thought were going to be big fancy careers, or, you know, I've only got a master's degree and I need a PhD, or, you know, I've got this teaching job, but we don't have enough money to have a child yet. And every part of my life I was discovering was most meaningful to me was relationship-based. Everything they were striving for was either a piece of paper, uh, move away from your family because you're getting paid more in Texas than you are where you're living now in Oklahoma, whatever it may be, um, but a general dissatisfaction with the way things are. And I started analyzing, you know, what have I learned? What is the message of university and corporate America to young people? Um, what the hell's wrong with this picture? And what can I share here in terms of basic human happiness? Not moral imperatives, but basic human happiness. And the, and the bottom line is this, we in the United States of America have the wrong definition of success. Success is not your job. Success is not the amount of money you have. I'm not talking about meeting basic needs. I'm talking about final aspirations. You know, to get really mushy here and sentimental, success is when you read happiness, contentment, peace, and safety in the eyes of those you love most. And if you are providing that reaction from a child, from a partner, from a spouse, from a friend, you are succeeding in this life. If all you're getting back is bigger bank balances, <coughs> job status, power over others, 
it's not a question of failing and you're going to be judged for it. It's a question of building a road towards dissatisfaction and unhappiness because that way lies madness. There's never enough. Mm-hmm. You always need more. So, you know, when I was comforted by Lucy sitting on my lap while I was in talking on the, a laptop computer with my dying mother in Switzerland, I kept visiting her and she didn't die during the visit. She up and died at age 98 when I wasn't there, but we talked all the time with my little two and a half and three-year-old Nora, Lucy on my lap. Nora is the one I'm caring for now who's little. I realized that what I was getting back from her in terms of making that situation bearable was something that no job, no title, no money, no bestseller, you know, the fact that I've been on Oprah, blah, 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 none of this meant shit. What meant something was having the unconditional love of a little girl who, when my mom died and Lucy was sitting with me, as we talked to my niece who was with her in a room in Switzerland where she had gone to live with my sister. And I said to Lucy, I'm so sad my mother died. And Lucy turned age three and put her arms around my neck and said, Ba, because they call me Ba, B-A, you have me. Well, in that moment lies the entire knowledge and wisdom of the human race. And if you don't get that, you're missing the boat. So it was out of that experience that came the desire to write a book in which I explored the why and wherefore of what it is that resonates with us from our closest relationships that never is produced by any other experience. Um, And why does it stay with us? And why as we get older, do we crave this more and more and more? In other words, grow in a little wisdom. Why does this become very clear to so many more people, including people, by the way, like David Letterman, who now looks back on his life with great regret of all the years he was this hot TV star, fucked around and messed his marriage up, finally has a baby. And it's like, why didn't, why wasn't I a, faithful husband with a child years ago, now that I know later in life, what this means in comparison to all the razzle-dazzle and bullshit I was involved with before. Now, these things aren't mutually exclusive. You know, we all need jobs and so forth. So the second part of my book, having laid this out and given it some science, which is basically the science of the survival of the friendliest rather than the survival of the fittest, because none of us would be here if it had been the survival of the fittest. That's utter bullshit. Darwin never preached that, by the way. I have a little bit in the book about how he was misinterpreted by people who wanted survival of the fittest, brutality and industry and all these other things. He was always about the survival of the fittest, uh, survival of the friendliest, because adaptation means learning to get on with others. That's why you survive. None of us would be here if somebody hadn't shared food in our ancestral village, if somebody hadn't cared for us, somebody hadn't sacrificed for us. That's why anybody survives, whether in this life or going back eons into the beginning of evolutionary history and hunter-gatherer tribes and so forth. Mm -hmm. So the book became an argument for the survival of the friendliest, not based again on any kind of political agenda or religious agenda at all, let's be nice to each other, but based on the agenda of happiness, pleasure, and joy. You, You are not happy unless you are a person living in community with others. You are not happy unless you have someone to call who loves you when you are in trouble. You are not joyful if you are turning to ashes, the best things, as it were, throwing away the candy wrapper, eating the candy wrapper and throwing away the candy again and again in life. So then the book became an argument almost for a legislative change. And then a weird thing happened. 
um, speaking of the right time at the right time or place or whatever, COVID came along in the last year of my work on this book. And I suddenly realized that everything that the COVID virus was forcing capitalist, career-oriented Americans mm -hmm. to do, stay home, take a deep breath, look around, decide what really matters. All these guys, you know, hotshot executives suddenly in Zoom meetings with a toddler running through, and now they have real lives. I mean, the background's no longer this thing. Like the other day I was talking to you and I heard this little voice, that's the world we're in. You know, and you didn't have to pretend you were in some fancy office. You could actually be at home and be a dad with your child. Um, my daughter, who's the CEO of, a, of an investment corporation in New York, was saying that one of her objections as a woman, who's also a chief executive officer of a fancy company, um, is that family and life have to be kept separate by women executives as if somehow if they admit they have children, like she says, you know, how many times do you have to lie when you're doing a school pickup? You pretend you're on your way to a meeting or something else because you got to pretend this part of your life doesn't exist. Well, suddenly COVID smashed the barriers. So, you know, uh, chief executive officers, uh, vice presidents of companies, laborers, plumbers, you know, we're all at home. We can't pretend we don't have children. We can't pretend we don't have pair bonded partners. We can't pretend that we can do everything by ourselves if we're alone in a one room apartment somewhere in, in uh, Dallas or wherever it may be. All of a sudden, you know, we are thrown back into the ancestral village of need and What's most important in life becomes really clear because you're forced to look at it. So the weird thing is, you know, there's nothing good about a pandemic except maybe that it forced a lot of us in our culture to kind of consider the things that my whole book was about, which is what does really make people happy? And what's interesting is now that COVID has played out a little further, and of course it's not over and it won't be with all the various strains and all the rest of it that might come out of it, but nevertheless, we now know, for instance, factually, because of statistics and studies, that a lot of young fathers, the male in a relationship, were happier at home working and don't want to go back to the office. We now know that a lot of people who were forced to do all the daycare for their children are kind of loath to let that go when it comes to two and three-year-olds preschool children. They'd like a couple of years. And so the idea, for instance, of giving parental leave that's not punitive that I talk about in my book that there ought to be legislation making it a, an essential civil rights crime to either denigrate somebody or, or not give them their job back if they take a couple of years off for childcare, that we ought to have social security payments for people who stay home with their children, because that too is a career, that we ought to make roles between men and women completely interchangeable, not by law, but by social acceptance of, um, time out for career that we ought to see and childcare that we ought to see that, um, that we all have bigger human fish to fry than simply making money for shareholders. All of a sudden, what was kind of an outlier point of view that I'm sharing with other people, but nevertheless, I was kind of a little bit out there. Hey, every time I open the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, the Atlantic, the New Yorker, there's another piece by someone who's quote unquote, discovering something that the primordial ancestor in a cave who was only surviving by community because we were all pitching in with childcare could have told them, but only modernity made us forget. So mm -hmm. that's, that's what the book is about. And, and the science is all there to support it. I mean, the whole thing has changed in terms of neurobiology and studies of parenthood yeah. and the rest of it. So I'm not an outlier and I'm not quoting fringe stuff. 
the mainstream now is all about the survival of the friendliest cooperation and community. That's where everything's at. So, you know, I had a treasure trove of things to quote and choose from intermingled with my own stories so that, you know, by the time I got to the final right of fall in love, have children stay put, save the planet, be happy. Um, you know, when you mix COVID into it, I was quoting articles of people who had discovered what I had been writing for four and a half, almost five years in my book, hoping somebody would agree. And now they're all ahead of the curve, writing articles about what they've discovered during the COVID years that absolutely point for point for point for point. I'll give you one example, Joe Biden's early legislative efforts to try to do childcare packaging, early legislative efforts to have a, a better social safety net so moms and dads could go back to work. All this stuff that actually became part of our going history, I was talking about in the book calling for it, COVID forced our hand and sort of advanced the game. And now, you know, it's an open question how far we can go. So essentially my, my book is calling people back to these basic relationship-based human joys away from what's good for corporate shareholders. So, I, uh, so I've read your book and um, if, if we had not had a pandemic, my conclusion on your book would be, these are all great ideas but I don't think they're very practical. Right. And I think what the pandemic has demonstrated is just how practical they really are and yeah. that the world can move forward. Businesses can still survive and do yeah. what they're doing and people can still be, it's almost like a new family values. Yeah. And the funny thing is the more enlightened corporate leaders, uh, people like Pfizer, for instance, that also happened to cook up our vaccine, um, a lot of them are beginning to actually call for the same thing and make changes in their companies. You know, toward the end of my book, if I can just read something to you, I, I put um, a little thing that's, here's how to make your pair bonded bonding work and maybe raise good kids too. It's a little bit facetious. Um, maybe you already know that living in the moment with those you love is your best bet for experiencing joy. Maybe you already want to help start a social, legislative, political, and spiritual revolution that changes the way our culture puts work, money, and power ahead of love. So here are some ideas in no particular order of importance to help you change the world around us and maybe your daily life too. If my list to follow starts to feel daunting, hang in there. There is no way to do all I recommend, but what matters is this, embrace the chance to love and be loved. And then here's a little list of things, and I'll just read a couple of them. Fight for legislation that takes family-friendly, relationship-strengthening steps in an enlightened survival of the friendliest direction. Family leave. Federal Social Security-type financial support for every stay-at-home child-caregiving parent. Laws protecting the rights of parents returning to work. Federal funding for 100% of all public education and free medical care for all, for a start. Fight for legislation and regulation to the, of the tech giants. Make them fully accountable on privacy issues. If you want to make the most difference possible to our human future, then work for, donate to, fight for, and demand programs to educate girls and women worldwide. No girl, however poor, however desperate, her country's situation should be excluded from school. Go out of your way to be kind, even if you don't feel like it. Think before you speak. Put down that fucking phone. <laughs> we, that's a point in my book. We tend to look for the big at the big events as important when it is really the small moments that matter most. Do the small things well, the rest will follow. So that's 
in the wrap up of the book, but I have spent 300 pages laying out why these aren't far fetched crazy ideas, why they actually fit, not some biblical narrative or philosophy or you know, whatever, but the actual way we evolve. These things that I lay out in my book have their roots in our evolutionary history. They are built into us. And I'll, I'll just give you an example I go through in the book. You know, why do we love? Love isn't some romantic idea for, you know, Hallmark cards and holidays and, and you know, Valentines and all this. Love is a genetic biological fact. It is the basis of all human existence. I don't mean that in some spiritual way. This is literal. Here, here's how it rolls. We have love because babies are born with big heads that would kill all their mothers if all human babies were not born prematurely. Because if their heads had developed as the heads of other primates and mammals develop, where kids can fall out of the womb and then be walking around and eating in treetops a few days later, with a few exceptions, uh, the gestation for humans is, is, is cut short by premature birth. So we're born with our brains developed less than half their size. They have to develop outside the uterus. It takes years to raise a human child compared to all other primates. Why? Because we are social creatures. We're social creatures so mothers can survive. Evolution never provided women with pelvic measurements that would let them survive childbirth without small heads of premature babies. This is a very weird thing. We're the only people that do this. We are designed, therefore, to be social creatures. How do you motivate people to get up in the middle of the night and feed a baby? How do you motivate fathers to stick around, parents to stick around, communities to stick around. You motivate by giving them this weird set of brain chemistry facts that is now proven by science and oxytocin and all the other things that happen. They give you this overwhelming, passionate feeling of love. So yes, it's three in the morning. And yes, this is the 10th night I've been woken up in a row. But no, I did not just throw my baby out the window, even though she's crying again, because I've got this overwhelming sense of love that overrides the whole get rid of this little pest thing and makes me not only keep this child, but maybe do more than that and stick around if I'm a, if I'm a parental unit who's not maybe attached romantically anymore, but I'm gonna do, quote, do it for the kids, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It isn't only biological parents. They've done all kinds of testing in the last 15 years that is absolutely rock solid uh, studies of Adoptive parents, gay or straight, doesn't matter. Once they have a close bond with a child, it doesn't have to be at birth, but put in the time and energy, they get exactly the same chemical product happening in their brain as mothers, biological mothers do, holding a newborn child and breastfeeding her. So we are built literally to survive because of love. Now you build a whole culture that says love is not important, attachment is not important, bonds are not important, fidelity to the, to the partner is not important, not just talking about sexual fidelity, but to that as an ideal. Family is not important. We will do nothing for single moms. We will give them a choice, abortion or go broke. Mm -hmm. We will do nothing for young parents. Come to, come to work a few minutes after your baby's born or lose your job. We will do nothing for males that enjoy taking care of children. We, we will say, hey, you will not have a serious career left if you're in the middle of your, your residency as a cardiac and thoracic surgeon. If you quit and go home and take care of a toddler for three years and then come back, you will never find your standing again. We don't honor that. We will do nothing for people's needs when it comes to medical care and the cost of having a child. We do not present women with real choices. We say, 
have a sexy, powerful career, and or wait till you're 43 to try to have a baby and spend $180,000 on IVF and all the other technologies. And then wake up one morning and realize, shit, my mother's 87 and there'll be no grandparent experience for this child. I am alone because I've smashed the ordinary human community of intergenerational relationships. There are so many things our career-oriented job-first culture has thrown away to chase this ideal of higher education combined with, with high-profile, sexy work, which, by the way, very few people attain. So we, we, we set up the same thing for someone who's going to be a manager in a store or going to be working at a cashier. We give nobody any breaks at all. So, you know, Jeff Bezos fires off rockets, but he won't let his people unionize. God forbid they want more than $15 an hour. That's the world we live in. So my book basically says this is absolute soul-destroying bullshit based on one fact. We didn't evolve this way, and therefore, this doesn't make us happy. So don't ask again, why do loneliness statistics skyrocket? Why are there more and more teen suicides? Why do we have such trouble putting relationships together? Well, hell, if you've moved 11 times, which the average American does in their lifetime, chasing jobs and education, you have no family nearby. Good luck with your relationship of the pair bonded thing when you don't have anybody to call to help you with that young child. Look at the other end of life. People, you know, wandering around in retirement communities, feeling lonely, uh, you know, wherever they've gone, um, their family is somewhere else. Yet the Berlin study, which I cite in the book of, of aging, says the single biggest factor in longevity for old people is not diabetes, smoking and dementia. It's do they have a regular or better yet daily relationship in caregiving for others, especially for grandchildren. This has an actual factor that is measurable, that extends life a lot longer than loading your brain into a computer, you know, a la high tech longevity stuff, a lot longer than going on a diet and losing some weight. Duh, loving ordinary relationships removed from our lives kill us in addition to everything else. So, you know, the book is replete with, with you know, I haven't made any of this up. Everybody's been studying this for a long time. The reason you haven't heard more about it is it doesn't fit in to the agenda of corporate America. Corporate America does not want you to read this book. This is the last thing they want you to see because I'm basically telling you to tell them to shove it and or reorganize our system in a way that actually makes room for human happiness. And it starts with relationships. And again, this isn't for just married, straight couple, monogamous couples like me. This is for my gay and non-binary friends. This is for everybody. And that is basically you have a choice, two roads, follow the corporate agenda or follow the human agenda. That's it. That's the choice. And it applies to all areas of life. And my book tries to unpack some of that and some of the science that backs that up, combined with my actual experiences with my own grandchildren. So it isn't simply just an argument. It's like, hey, here's what I have been doing, cooking for them after school, picking them up. And this is what I found. And this is what I've experienced, some of the joy and the enlightenment I felt in my life. And by the way, I'm not a very nice person. Go back in my history a little bit. And if Frank Schaefer can change and discover these things, anybody can. Yeah. Yeah. And the pandemic proves that uh, these things are possible too. So when corporate America says, or the government says, uh, how are you going to pay for this? Or how is yeah. this going to happen? Well, we've been doing it for 18 months and it's been happening just fine. That's it. And the money was always there. Mm -hmm. And you'll notice, by the way, I, it's not a coincidence that 
given the choice of how we spend the money that President Biden had to finally close the door on Afghanistan and Iraq in exactly the time, same time frame that he was starting some legislation that would actually help American families. And it wasn't to start another international global war that drags on for 20 years. It was to close them out and try to put some of that money back into things like childcare, education, medical care, and all the rest of it. And I'm going further and calling people to make really individual decisions in their own lives, not dependent on government, but dependent on priorities and, and, and how we choose to live, uh, given the fact that different choices have different results. So if we raise our kids telling them, listen, the only thing we want you to do is get into a good college, because if you get into a good college, you can earn all that money. And this is the most important thing. How about instead raising them to be caring, loving individuals that don't care so much what their job title is or whether they've got a, a you know, a 15 room house overlooking Bel Air in Hollywood or whether they've got a, a small apartment in, in the Bronx, but rather the relationship matters and their family matters, we would have a much happier culture and uh, less besotted by consumerism. And then there's a whole nother thing, which I get into a bit in the book. And that is what have these big fancy careers done? Well, they have brought our planet near to collapse where no life on earth is gonna be able to survive our quote careers much longer because they're all about consumption and they're not about regenerating what we've got. So the really big arc is that when you fall out of step with revolutionary history and you chase other things, that don't fit in with make us what make us happy, you actually have the other the other shoes keep dropping. So who would have thunk it? All this American success has led to the destruction of our planet. Mm -hmm. So that on top of not being happy with all our big, sexy, fantastic, you know, jobs, in addition to not finding satisfaction there, we've even gone back to take away the very basics of life, like drinkable water, air to breathe a climate where there's rainfall or there's not constant burning of California, flooding yeah. of the Northeast. So in the biggest circle, it hasn't worked on the individual level. This career-oriented corporate vision of life has not worked on the planetary level of even species survival. The whole thing has become awful and we are now living to see it. And then of course, as you mentioned earlier, COVID accelerated the process in the sense that it really gave us a choice when we weren't thinking we needed one. And now we're kind of looking around and saying, do, you know, when we go back to normal here in November, December, January, you know, facing into the next year, uh, it, what is normal? Is normal what we've always been doing or is there another normal that we kind of forgot how to do? Have we, has COVID been a blessing and given us a breather to think about this? And, you know, my book says, yeah, it kind of has really a sad, tough, horrible blessing. But <clears throat> look, the Renaissance in Europe in the 14th and 15th century came out of the Black Death. And people said, guess what? The Roman Catholic Church has not given us any answers about this. How about we do some science now? Well, a very similar change has to come about in our own culture. Corporate America has not given us answers. It's become a great destroyer. How about we go back to the drawing board here and say, you know what? Uh, that dad who decided to stay home and take a pay cut so he could be with his toddler and take care of him. Um, he was on the right track and he wasn't only just on the right track for his family by not putting the sexiest, biggest, highest paid career first. If a few more people did that, we might not be burning down our planet so fast because we need less of this bullshit we surround ourselves with. Yeah. You know, I think a lot about um, our legacies and, it, you know, it's been the case for however long, I mean, forever, it seems like that your legacy is really what 
uh, you're going to, what finances or, you know, you can leave your children and uh, can you leave my house or, you know, all these things that you've acquired. Um, but what, if, what if you're able to leave them with character and love and it's so that they know how to do that and that they can pass that on too. Yeah. Uh, that's really a diff, that's really a different thing. Yeah. And the security of knowing that they were loved unconditionally and where you put your money, where your mouth is, you know, I have this little exchange I do with my, my grandchildren. Um, you know, I grew up speaking French and I speak a little Italian and we have this little thing in three languages. And when they're going up the street, going home, I call after them, je, and they answer back tem in French. And then I say T and they yell back across the neighborhood. I guess the neighbors are all looking. What's this? Amo in Italian. And I love you. And then I say, I, and the last thing they say before they go in their door is love you. Now, all these kids from the time they were toddlers have done this. Lucy is 13 and being cool and has a cell phone and the whole bit does this without even thinking about it. Doesn't care if anybody sees her. And, you know, to me, the fact that with this phone of hers now, yeah, she texts some of her friends, but every single day she tells me what she's doing. And she comes by on the weekends to, to, to let me know what's going on. And she uses a little space I've got in the barn where I set up an easel and I say, look, you know, we're going to run out a lot of stuff, but I promise you, you'll never run out of art supplies. And she never has. And so she shows up there and works. You know, to me, these are pearls. This is, this is like why I'm alive. I have a 13-year-old who thinks her grandfather's cool and wants to be with me. When she brings a friend home from school, she wants that boy or girl to meet her old grandfather. And I'm in her orbit. And I didn't get there because I insisted on it or gave her big presents or lavished her with money. I gave her a corner of my barn where I keep my tools to paint. I come in there and see what she's doing. She grew up napping in my arms. She knows I love her because I've been there for her every step of the way since she was born. And so when I call up the street, je, and she says, tem, ti, amo, I love you. This little ritual encapsulate what we've done. But this isn't the easy path. This is a path that takes 12 years to build, 13 years to build, a lifetime to build. And the problem is our culture is always looking for this silver bullet bullshit. You know, Send $25 to Pat Robertson and he'll pray for you and your hemorrhoids will go away or whatever. Everything's <laughs> solved. Uh, he'll save the world from liberals and Jews and gays or whoever. Whatever the thing is, that that's the evangelical way. America does the same thing. You know, buy this iPhone, get this thing. Uh, you know, Facebook will connect you with everybody. It's always this silver bullet. Bullshit. Facebook won't connect you with anybody. Unless you spend a good chunk of a lifetime with that person in person, being with them, caring for them, are there for them night and day. That's connection. All this other stuff is just a commercialized bullshit version that makes somebody else money through advertising. Let's just get that through our head. You want connections? Put in the time and be there. You don't, you want, you think all these cheap things like Pat Robertson telling you to send him 25 bucks to save the world from gay people or, or, you know, Facebook telling you to connect you to everybody in your little group. That's not connection. Connection is face to face in person. And until we get back to that, the greatest treasure of our life is stripped from us. And that is what we read in the eyes of those who love us most. Yeah, sure. There's separation from some people. You can't be everywhere at once. I'm not saying I never use the phone or I never use a Zoom call or whatever. But I haven't, you know, it's been a long time since I've deluded myself into thinking that tech will put us all back together again. It's not going to. Mm -hmm. um, 
So, you know, essentially human community is human community. That means proximity. That means making choices not to move for the job that took you away from these people. That means making less and living more simply. If that means you can be closer to the people you love and who love you. That means being there for people even when they annoy you if you're close to them. That means not walking away for, from a relationship, but sticking with it through hard years. So you go on to the benefits of having an old friend who's been with you for life. Uh, as, as I have experienced with my wife, Jeannie, who I, we got pregnant when she was 18. I was 17 in an evangelical community, total mess. And, um, you know, we're still fighting through a lot of things, but the story kind of looks like it's sort of ending happily because uh, Jeannie stuck with it. She was very patient. She kicked my ass. I changed. I wanted to change. The, the motivation was love. And the motivation was something that I look back on now and I'm grateful for. I don't remember what it was like the first day I was shooting a movie after I thought I wanted to be a movie director. I do not remember what I was feeling like the first time I saw a book published. You know, I've been on some big TV shows and stuff. I have no desire to go back and do more of that in the sense of like, oh, I wish I was doing this instead of just taking care of children, whatever. It's quite the reverse. So I think that my book will encourage anybody who's already putting human values first, parents, adoptive parents, gay and non-binary people working on their relationships instead of their putting jobs first, PhD candidates who take a year off to have a child when their advisor is telling them, don't do that, it'll hurt your career. Go to hell, I'm gonna do this. I'm putting this first. We have to have the courage to push back against this system. And that's what I'm talking about. Well, hey everyone, the book is Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy. And we have been talking with Frank Schaefer. Uh, his book comes out today. Go out and get yourself a copy. I have read it. It is a great book. And I think that it has incredible practical value. Uh, Frank, thanks so much for being on our show today. Hey, Eric, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time and reading the book. And uh, please let your folks know that if they have questions for me and get in touch with you, you will pass them on to me. I do answer my emails. Great. Thanks, Frank. Thanks.